Welcome to the Chorus in the Chaos podcast. This is Grayson Gilbert. Unfortunately, I am not joined by Jack Lee or Blake tonight. Uh, both came down with an illness, so I'm just going to do kind of a one-off tonight. It's a little bit different than what we've been doing normally, obviously, because there's just not normal interaction tonight. Uh, but one of the topics that I felt we could cover, just simply because we're in this season talking about common struggles of the Christian life, uh, basically was a sermon that I preached maybe, I want to say, even close to a month ago now. Um, the basic premise of that was born out of kind of a four-part series between myself and my pastor, where uh, on a biweekly basis, what we've been doing is simply going through different aspects of the gospel. So the beginning of it was the problem, and that's just talking about the reality of sin. Uh, the next our sermon that I had preached was called The Solution. That's talking about the explicit gospel through Jesus Christ. And then the command, which is to simply repent and believe. And then the fourth one, which I was able to preach, was called The Blessings. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. The reason for it is because I tend to believe, at least if you're a normal Christian like I am or like many others that I've talked to, is we struggle with this idea of what it means to be in Christ. Uh, part of that's just simply due to the reality that we forget what God has done for us. We, at times, also still have too high of thoughts for ourselves and too low of thoughts on what God has done or who God is. Um, the other aspect could be we're going through a season of what I would call pruning, right? We have dead branches that are being pruned back simply so that new fruit may grow in its place. We're undergoing through hardship, or we just might be going through a season of doubt. But the antidote, no matter where you may find yourself in life, ultimately is what I'm going to talk about tonight, which is just grounding yourself in what those simple truths are that we embraced in coming to the gospel to begin with. So what I want to lay out tonight is just this what's called the indicative mood, the indicative reality, and that is either fact or reality. That's all that means. So when I talk about an indicative, what I'm talking about is something that you literally have no part in playing. Um, it's purely on the basis of what God has done in Christ by grace. So what do I mean when I start off with this? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I'm talking to Christians, right? You are a person who has embraced the reality of the problem. Uh, what I'm talking about there is simply that you agree with the basic fact with God that he says we are sinners deserving of wrath for all eternity in hell. So humanity is not basically good. You're not good, nor am I for that matter. Every last one of us has gone our own way. We've rejected our creator. And apart from the grace of God in Christ, we're all utterly helpless to solve the problem. Right? The solution then is simply found in Jesus Christ. And what I mean is that we must know and embrace that solution in order to be saved. In other words, there actually has to be a base set of facts that we agree to, um, what we would call doctrine or theology, about what Jesus has actually done on the cross and accomplished on our behalf. <clears throat> so some basic elements of that would be we have to be able to affirm that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father, and he died on the cross on our behalf, and then, again, was raised on the third day. We also must be able to affirm it's purely by grace, through faith, that one can be saved. In other words, no other solution that's offered by the imaginations of men can save you. So whether you're thinking of Islam or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism, uh, even Roman Catholicism, because it's teaching something apart from purely grace through faith, um, none of those things can save you. None of them can solve the predicament we have because of sin, right? It is only through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that you can be saved. And that is what we would call the gospel. In light of that solution, man has a response, and that's one of repentance and faith. And all that means is simply that you are to turn from your former ways and trust completely in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. But it's more than a simple acknowledgement of what we would call the base facts, right? The reformers actually developed three different categories in which they talked about this. They talked about the essensus, or the actually rather the notitia, the essensus, and the fiducia. Those are the three elements of what they said was genuine faith. And what they meant by that was simple. You have to have the correct facts about the gospel, right? You can't just believe whatever you and I want. Um, I can't believe that by sitting on a couch eating Cheetos that I'm going to get to heaven. That's just not how it works. But not only do you have to believe the correct facts, you have to actually agree to those facts. So there's the census, right? I'm actually agreeing to what God has said is the solution to the problem of sin. But beyond that, it requires more than just a mere uh, identification of those correct truths 
and a mere agreement to those facts, you actually have to trust and hope and love those facts. In other words, when you come to see the truth of the gospel, and you truly are embracing it, you actually have a hope in this reality. You identify as a sinner who has been saved by the grace of God. You look at what Christ did on the cross and you say, he took my sin, he bore my penalty, he took my wrath. Ultimately, I am freed from the punishment of hell and God's judgment simply because Jesus took my wrath and he gave me instead his righteousness. So what that means then is now you would have a life that reflects a genuine trust in those truths. At the end of the day, if all those are present, meaning that you can know the problem and you embrace it, right? I am a sinner and I am doomed to judgment under God's wrath for an eternity in hell. If I see Christ as the only solution, right? Not Christ plus something, but Christ as the only solution to the problem. If I repent and believe the gospel, then the scriptures would simply say that I'm a Christian. But because of this, though, there's this reality of what it means to be at union with Christ or in Christ, as Paul would say it numerous times throughout Scripture. What that means is that once you have that new union or that new identity, being a Christian, being one who is in Christ and forgiven, there are numerous blessings that are bestowed upon you simply because you have come to faith. In other words, it's all more grace that's been given to you by the pure, undeserved favor of God. So. What I want to take time to do tonight is just simply talk about those realities. The reason for it, again, is we tend to forget these things. But if it's an indicative, meaning it's a declared fact or reality, then whether or not you and I forget it, whether or not you and I doubt, whether and I, whether you and I maybe even feel that we are saved some days, if God has declared it and this is a fact, it doesn't really matter what you and I think. Now, I'm not saying that carte blanche as far as, you know, the one who doubts, perhaps there are some genuine issues there, but my point is more so that on those days, and we all have them if we're at least being honest with ourselves, but on those days where sin creeps up yet again, and we're feeling incredibly insignificant because of returning back to the same old stupid sin, or those days where life is just hard, you know, the cancer diagnosis hits, and all of a sudden you start to real. Um, these realities that we live in just simply by being a part of a broken and fallen world, these declarative realities are always constant, meaning they can't be removed from you if you are genuinely in Christ. Much like salvation is not something that will be stripped of you simply as a result of Christ's saving work on the cross, these many blessings that are yours through Christ also can't be stripped of you. And it's a wonderful reality when we start to look at what they actually are. So the first one I want to talk about is just this reality of what, what it means to be declared righteous by Christ, right? Paul in Romans 3, I'm going to go through 21 through 25, at least the first half of 25. Um, what You'll see it as I go through it, but I'm actually just going to lift these all from the book of Romans, and I'll take a very high-level approach. But we'll start with this first one, is that he talks about this declaration of righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ and not by works, Right, so in Romans 3, Paul writes, but now, apart from the law, uh, uh, sorry, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's through Romans 3.23. Now, just prior to this section, Paul has actually been showing the problem of all mankind, right? Um, through Romans 1 and through Romans 2, he's just been laying it out. And then in the beginning of Romans 3, he goes through his whole list of there's not one righteous, no, not one. At this point, though, what Paul does is actually make a crucial shift. What he's doing is starting to show that God has provided a solution through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But notice in verse 21, what does he do? Well, he shows that this righteousness of God cannot be manifested or made known through the law. Rather, it's only exclusively demonstrated through the person and work of Jesus Christ, but it's appropriated through faith in Jesus for all who believe. <clears throat> so here's what I mean by that. If you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, that is a righteousness that is granted to you apart from works, meaning that you cannot do anything to accomplish it. These are basic Gospel Facts 101, but again, these are things that we often struggle to remember, especially as we're just simply battling sin. I think of the times where 
I, earlier on in my Christian walk, there was, you know, just much that's being stripped of me, much that was being shown to me in light of all the sin that was still present, right? You're excited, you're on fire for the Lord in that sense. But at the same time, it's a very sensitive time because all of a sudden this whole new life is being introduced to you and you're seeing sin like you've never seen it before. Well, when that starts to happen, even if it's late in life or you're, you know, late in the faith, so to speak, the same reality that was declared to be true in the beginning is now true today. Here's again, what I mean by that. You're not looking over your shoulder constantly wondering if your works are good enough, right? I mean, if you simply pause and think about that reality, that's a wonderful thing to dwell on. When you're knee deep in sin, of course, you must repent. You must pursue your Lord and Savior. You must put away sin and put on holiness. But the base truth of the gospel remains. You are justified or declared righteous, not by works of the law, not by your obedience, but purely by the grace of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, notice how Paul picks back up on this in verse 24 and 25, right? He says, being justified, how? As a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now, this is really where the message of the gospel comes to the forefront, again, to show it's purely by God's grace. When he talks about justification, right, we're justified as a gift. It's actually a legal term, and it's speaking to this declaration that God has actually made, right? Before you were deemed guilty, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you were under the wrath of God. All of that was a true indicative reality that hung suspended over you as the unforgiven sinner, but simply by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, right through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, he says that there is this declaration as a gift by his grace, meaning you're no longer guilty. You're free from that guilty verdict. Picture it much like a courtroom, if you will, right? You go before the judge and all that you have standing before you to represent you is everything you've done in your life that has been sinful and wrong. I think of, I think it's Psalm 54. I can't remember which one, but when David is, you know, caught in his sin with Bathsheba, he, he actually frames that whole psalm in terms of genuine repentance. But he talks about three different ways in which he's sinned against God, right? He has knowingly violated the law of God. He has been wayward and gone his own way. And then he has fallen short of the glory of God. So no matter how you may think of it, every one of us is pegged straight between the eyes with that kind of stuff. Well, that's what hangs over you as you go before God, who is the righteous judge of all the earth. But on the basis of faith, what gets declared for the forgiven sinner through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, is this declaration of righteousness instead. Again, this is what's given to us by grace simply because of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. The point that Paul makes here is actually incredibly simple, but it's incredibly profound. Only Jesus can cover us with his righteousness so that we can be forgiven. But the idea is it goes well beyond just forgiveness. He says, in essence, the very righteousness of Christ is counted for you through faith, right? This is what, uh, I mean, R.C. Sproul is for, famous for this, but he, text, he talks about this reality that this righteousness is an alien righteousness. It's not a righteousness of our own. It's not one that you and I can attain to. It is, in fact, an imputed righteousness, or it is Christ's own righteousness that actually covers you instead. So this is a once and for all declaration, meaning you will never be deemed unrighteous if you have genuine faith in Christ. Think of the significance of that. Think of how amazing that reality is. If you are justified, if you have been declared righteous by the God of this universe, you cannot be declared unrighteous because Christ's righteousness covers you, right? When you sin, when you screw up the next day, because you're a sinner, just like I am, the very same righteousness of Christ that covered you the day before is still covering you that day. Each and every day you wake up with the very righteousness of Christ cloaking you so that when the Father looks upon you, what he sees is not you in all of your glorious sins. What he sees is the faithful obedience, the active and passive obedience of Jesus Christ so that he looks at you blameless and holy and without sin. So that declaration of justification, that righteousness that's been 
appointed to you, rather, given to you simply by faith, is an incredible blessing. Because of this, though, right, that's that's kind of the base level blessing. But because of this, you inherit all sorts of different blessings, right? Romans 5, 1 through 2, Paul then talks about being at peace with God. So he writes, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult and hope in the glory of God. So think of this in light of everything before, right? Romans 1, 2, and 3. Previously, we were enemies of God. We were alienated and estranged. We were under his wrath. We were literally at enmity with him. We were boasters and inventors of evil. He says, in fact, we were actually God-haters. But now we have peace with God through being justified or declared righteous. So the idea is that simply by result of that declaration of righteousness, right? That's Christ's righteousness imputed to you and to I through genuine faith that you have peace with God. What that means on a very practical level is that you could actually have assurance that God looks at you as if you are now counted free of sin, right? That God credits the righteousness of Christ to you, all because of what Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. In other words, this is a reality that he accomplished. It's not some internal sense of peace that depends on how you feel each day. It's an objective reality, right? If, if you had to count on how you feel each and every day, would you feel at peace with God? But that's not even what he's talking about here. And that's the beautiful reality. What he's actually identifying is that this is an objective fact that has been accomplished. It's final. It's decisive. Once that declaration of righteousness was made, where God had forgiven you of your sin and removed it from you, placed it upon Jesus Christ, and then credited you with Jesus Christ's righteousness, in that exact same moment, I mean, we can't quantify it with time, but in that exact same moment, you have peace with God. The sin that separated you from God, the hostility that you had with God is all resolved. Why? Because you stand now in grace is what he says, right? So picture it as two different realms, right? Prior, prior to knowing Jesus Christ, you stood in this realm of vileness and impurity and wickedness. Essentially, you stood in the realm of wrath, right? What awaits all mankind who do not know and believe and hope in Jesus Christ. But now, as a result of faith, right? You've been introduced into this whole new realm. This is the realm of grace, so to speak. This is where you exult in hope in the glory of God. You have a new set of affections. You have a new set of desires. You have actual substantive peace with this God of the universe who at one point looked at you as a child of Satan doomed for wrath. But it's not, again, because of anything you have done. It is purely because God has looked upon you through Jesus Christ and declared you righteous by faith. And then he says, as a result of that, that declaration of righteousness, you now have peace with God. In fact, the peace with God is the easy thing to accomplish simply because your sin has now been resolved, right? Jesus Christ restored your relationship with God and that relationship with him simply cannot be undone. That reality of peace cannot be undone. You may wake up feeling awful. You may feel guilty. You may feel there's this barrier that's still between you and God because of your sin, but it's in essence taking down that dividing wall where it's been utterly demolished, all as a result of God saying, because you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are righteous, right? Once and for all, that declaration of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ actually has an objective reality. It doesn't change from day to day because you screwed up and sinned a lot one day, and then the next day you did somewhat better. And it's that's not how any of this works. Again, the idea is simply bound up in the reality that Paul speaks toward here. Christ died and rose again to resolve your sin, and because of this, you have peace. It's not based on your feelings. It's all based on this objective reality of what the cross and his resurrection accomplished. Romans 6, 4 through 7 <clears throat> Excuse me. Paul then talks about this reality that says we are dead to sin and alive in Jesus Christ. Right? So starting in verse four, he says, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. 
For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly, again, notice that, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So that, so here's a purpose or a result rather, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. Again, what Paul is speaking to here is this objective reality that simply does not depend on you or I. This is all a result of the work that Jesus Christ has done and simply granted to you as a free gift of his grace through genuine faith. Notice that Paul begins speaking of this fact that we have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection, right? There's a point that he's making that we died with Christ when he was killed on the cross, but you have also risen with him. So think of this in light of the two realms of existence I spoke of just a few minutes ago. There's this realm of judgment and wrath, right? And the realm of grace in which you now stand. Well, that realm of judgment and wrath was also the realm under the power and dominion of sin. As an unbeliever, everything that you did is tainted by this reality, right? Your thoughts, your intents, uh, Genesis 6 talks about the thoughts and the intents always being evil continually. Well, in light of being in this realm of grace now, because you have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection, you've been moved into this new realm free from the dominion and power of sin. Well, the reason for this is actually incredibly simple. The old self, he says, has been crucified with Christ. And the result is that we're no longer slaves to sin. Why? Because we've also been raised with him. So before you had nothing but this reality in which you, you walked where you were a slave to your sin. And if you can remember that, I mean, there's a point when I look back at my old life. I mean, I, if you don't know much about me, I'll give you just a brief insight to it. Um, I was a guy with the quintessential shocking testimony, right? Uh, the charismatics loved me because I had a, I was an atheist who came to faith by reading the Bible. I was a drug dealer, a womanizer, alcoholic, anything that you want to kind of throw into there. That was who I, I lived as before. But the reality that I was able to look at as an early Christian was simply that that old self was dead. And I know many of you listening to this maybe didn't live as dark or seedy as a past as I have, but that same reality is equally as true for you. So whether you have the quote unquote boring testimony or the exciting testimony like mine, the reality is that once genuine faith takes place, once that declaration of righteousness has happened, once you've been moved to have peace with God because of the work of Jesus Christ, the old self is dead, but you've also been raised with him, right? There's this newness that's been created within your being. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, in the same manner, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Well, the incredible blessing that God gives us through faith in Christ is that whatever you were prior to being saved is no longer the case, right? You're not merely declared righteous or at peace with God, though these are incredibly huge blessings. Every bit of your past life, whether it's defined by regret, sin, folly, and everything else, none of that defines you anymore, right? That old self is completely dead. It's so dead, in fact, that you can't raise it up again. You've been plucked up from this old realm, so to speak, and brought into a new realm where there's no intersect anymore. This is what I think we have a hard time grasping. We so often want to look at things as if that old man is still alive, right? When you and I are in sin, the first thing we start to do is beat ourselves up. And in some ways that's appropriate, right? We should feel shame over our sin, but the pity of it is that we tend to dwell there and we don't move back to the cross to identify and see, okay, here's exactly what Jesus Christ has accomplished. We don't look at it and say, I'm going to now draw encouragement in the fact that God has literally risen or raised a dead man to life, right? That dead man is gone and buried. That dead man was part of this realm under wrath and under sin, but that dead man no longer exists. There is this new man who has been raised with Christ that dead man died with Christ when he died. The new man now lives in this realm of grace. The new man now is able to put on Christ each and every single day. The new man has the power of the spirit that he might walk in righteousness and please God. Every bit of your old life, beloved, is dead. 
That's the point, right? He also says we were slaves to sin, but now we're slaves to righteous or righteousness rather. So that's Romans six seventeen through 18. So notice what Paul says. He, he then says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So think of that reality in light of Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah says that the heart is desperately sick and wicked, right? Who can understand it? Um, it's desperately sick above all things. But at this point, notice what Paul says, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, right? He's talking about the gospel, but also the teaching of the apostles. So there's this reality that's also taken place here where that heart that was dead in sin and estranged from God, the heart that loved the affections of the old man, so to speak, has actually been transformed and changed as well, right? That's part of the root of our problem when we start to think about it, is that our heart is desperately sick and wicked. That's part of the condition of being a sinner. The point that Paul makes here, though, is that this newness of life actually plays out in a rather profound way. So when the unbeliever comes to belief or faith, by embracing the gospel, right, what happens is there's this whole new set of affections and loves that takes place. There's this whole new sense of freedom. You think of any conversation with you have an unbeliever, and what do they tend to think is that when you embrace the gospel, when you embrace the Christian faith, you ultimately miss out on something, right? You miss out on some sort of freedom. You don't get to do what you want to do anymore. Um, in reality, what they're saying is, I just want to go and freely sin. But the sad part is, they never see that they're still a slave, right? The reality Paul speaks to here, and he's drawing a contrast, is that either way you stretch it, you're a slave, right? You're a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. But the profound thing is that that mastery changes through union with Jesus Christ, right? Not only does your nature change as a sinner, so that the disposition of your own heart is now bent towards righteousness and pleasing Christ rather than sin. But every intent of your thoughts and your hearts that are only evil continually have also been transformed in some ways. This is where I think, and I'm a, a full-blooded Calvinist, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rag against my own team here, but this is where I think that Calvinists can actually in some ways still be of detriment here. What I'm not saying is that all of our thoughts now are good, right? We still have this reality of sin. We still have what my pastor calls a sin hangover, or as Luther put it, we're sim simultaneously just and sinner. So we still have this natural problem of the heart, but there's a fundamental shift in our nature and being as a result of salvation. But there's also a shift in who our master is, right? You no longer are subject to sin. Truly, that's an indicative fact. You are no longer a slave to sin. Instead, your new master is Christ. That has profound implications when you think about it. Because you've been buried with Jesus in his death and raised in his life, you've been transferred from one master to another. And ultimately, that transfer actually affects your heart. It has to. Your heart has to actually change. This is the promise of that was given to Ezekiel talking about the new covenant as the circumcision of the heart. If we look at it and put it in such a negative light that the heart doesn't actually change at all, but it's still sold in complete bondage to sin, that it's utterly, desperately wicked just as it was before, we're actually missing a rather profound bit of truth here about what Christ has accomplished. In essence, what I'm saying is that you've been freed from that old master, again, by Jesus Christ. Now, that means every bit of things have changed, right? Christ being your master instead of sin means that at the very core of your being, not only have you come to embrace the truth of God's word, but you've committed yourself to that. You've committed yourself to obedience. You've committed yourself to order your affections, as the Puritans would put it. You've believed the message of the apostles being the gospel, but you're also committed to the teaching that's attached to that gospel. So what I mean by that is rather simple. It's not just this quote-unquote get-out-of-jail-free card that so many people would like to claim. In reality, what it means is that if you have a fundamentally changed new nature because of union with Jesus Christ, that actually plays out in a rather practical way. It's the same thing that James would talk about, where your faith actually produces good works.
So again, indicative reality, there's a change that happens. There's a transfer of mastership. You're no longer under the curse or dominion of sin. In that sense where it is your master, you have been freed from that master. Your heart has actually changed in some respects. Again, not perfect, but it does mean that, that there is a, a profound change. The next blessing I want to talk about is that we were previously doomed to eternal death, but now we have eternal life in Jesus Christ, right? This is a rather simple one. Everybody, or at least hopefully you should have this memorized if you're going to do evangelism and stuff like that. But Romans 6.23, the Apostle Paul says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The reality that we talk about regularly, and you should hear about in your churches regularly, is that ultimately, through Adam's sin came death, right? And this is a reality we all know well. No matter what you and I may try to do, we can't overcome it. We can exercise every single day of our lives. We can eat healthy. We can order our lives in, in basically the, the best ways possible. But not a single one of us has the day written on our calendar, tomorrow I die. Instead, what we have is we've got, I'm going to the dentist on Tuesday. My wife is going to the doctor on Thursday. Uh, we've got class on this day and so on and so forth. But not a single one of you has the day marked or the hour marked on your calendar for when you die. The sin of Adam, though, didn't just simply bring about our physical death. It brought on our eternal death, right? This is what we talk about when we say there's an eternity reserved under the wrath of God for all, you know, for the obviously the rest of eternity, but in hell. But the contrast, again, is that what has been accomplished in Jesus Christ, but that the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what you and I can't thwart, what you and I can't earn, has been given to you, literally as a gift, purely by grace, if you believe in Christ. Right? We, we actually just got done celebrating this with Easter, but... The, the simple reality is that we have a hope beyond this life. We have a hope that because we have been forgiven, that we have been made it to be at peace with God, that we have been declared righteous, we also have this gift of eternal life. The idea, again, is incredibly simple. You no longer stand to face eternal death. But even physical death has lost its sting or its power over you. Here's what I mean when I say that. When you die, you don't, don't just simply go down into the grave and fade and rot into nothingness. Martin Luther put it like this when he, his life was on the line. He, he said, as he was called to revoke or recant his teaching, um, basically, you can cut off my head, but God will give me a new one. The idea is simple, right? As soon as you and I die, where do we go but to be in paradise with our Lord? We will have resurrected bodies. We do not go to hell like the unbeliever. We're immediately ushered into the presence of God, who is life himself. But the concept is even more mind-boggling when you start to think of this reality, because eternal life is not with the constraints of time, right? We think of eternality simply in, in respect to time, where it just is ongoing and never, never ending. And that's true. But eternality is a component of who God is in his very nature. So when we experience eternal life, what we experience is simply more of God himself, though that is experiencing God without the limits of time. And that's an incredibly hard thing for us to fathom. But the baseline of what I'm trying to communicate is simple, or rather not simple, but I guess the way I'm trying to phrase it is simple. Every bit of what we hope in with regard to eternal life is a quality of life rather than a quantity of life, right? There is a quality of life in which we are attached directly to the life giver. We are ushered into the presence of God himself who is life. And none of that will ever fade. None of that will ever be tainted because of sin. None of that can ever be spoiled because Satan. You know, you will never experience any less qualitative life for all time. And that, again, is a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. But when you start to do so, what it tells you and I is that there's no need for us to be afraid of death, right? Jesus defeated death in his resurrection. He paid the debt to cover our sin, right? But through his life, he's also given us access to God. And so there's this idea even now where we, in, in one sense, are eternal beings. And what I mean by that is quite simple. Um, 
when Jesus talks about this in the book of John, he actually says that you may believe and have eternal life. It's actually a present tense verb. What I'm saying is not that you're going to live in the flesh and the sinful nature the rest of your life and never actually experience sort of glorification and resurrection, but there's you're only going to ever experience more and more of life with God. You're only going to experience access with God to a greater capacity. So while you are limited in that now, that doesn't somehow just magically stop. It actually just becomes larger and larger and larger for all eternity and better and better and better. And then when you throw in the reality that we are without sin and without our adversary, Satan, and that it's without end, and that this quality of life is directly attached to the God who is life. I mean, think of how amazing that is. At the end of the day, none of this so far depends on who you are or what you've done at all. And that's the thing I want probably most all or most of for you to take home is simply that none of this is based on any bit of your obedience. None of this is based on uh, your station of life. I mean, these are just basic realities of what Christ has accomplished all through his life, death, and resurrection. Simply because he was faithful and true to everything that he did in this life and everything that he promised and everything that he promises to do, you will have access to these things. In fact, you have access to them at this point. You will only ever experience them to a greater degree throughout all eternity. The next one is a blessing that comes right off of Romans 8, 1, right? We were once condemned to wrath, but there is now no for, or now therefore no condemnation. <clears throat> so the explicit verse, Paul says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, Jesus. Again, notice those who are in Christ. The, Paul, or the point Paul makes is actually very simple, but again, it's another one of those world-tilting realities if you can really understand it or grapple with it. And it just simply means you are fully and freely forgiven. Fully and freely forgiven. There will never be a point in which condemnation hangs over you any longer. The penalty that sin brought was not merely physical death and eternal death, right? We know that. There's not just this wrath of God who stand, or for all those who stand condemned or judged guilty in their sins, there's also this reality that eternal wrath is present. But he says in Christ, there is no condemnation. In other words, none of this will be the thing that comes to you at the end of all days. That guilty verdict has been removed, right? You've been declared righteous because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In every single way, you no longer have your sin held against you. The wrath of God has been removed, right? Again, this is what he means by you have peace with God. All that's done away with. But the reality of no condemnation is an even sweeter cherry on top of that. Because what was a pronouncement of guilty before, what was a pronouncement of eternal judgment, is completely undone because of what Christ has done. Again, none of this re or depends on how you feel. All of this is declared true a fact, a given reality, if you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the point I'm trying to make with this, is that the reality of no condemnation means that you don't have to look over your shoulder any longer. Again, when you sin, you can look and trust back in the cross and say, Jesus accomplished it, right? He finished God's plan of redemption, and I don't have to worry about the fact that I'm going to be condemned to all of, or to hell for all eternity, what I have to do is confess and repent and pick back up and keep walking the Christian walk. But at no point, if you are in Christ, will there ever be condemnation on you again. Right? You, you may suffer some reward being lost. You may suffer some sort of judgment for sins. Paul talks about this in either 1st or 2nd Corinthians. I can't remember off the top of my head. But there's never a point where you'll be condemned. You are utterly, fully, finally freely forgiven. And that's the beautiful reality of what Jesus has accomplished. When you wake up the next day, you're going to be just as freely forgiven as you were the last day. Each and every day of your life, there will never be a point in which that no condemnation is suddenly stripped from you. The atonement actually accomplished this reality. Christ's resurrection satisfied the wrath of God. And so you don't have to worry about that. That's the beautiful reality. Again, none of it depends on how you feel. 
You may be beating yourself up. You may be the guy who's constantly looking at it and saying, you know what? I don't know that I've been forgiven. And yet you confess the gospel and you're like, no, no, I actually hope in this reality. I trust that Jesus died on the cross for me. I trust that he rose again and that I have the hope of eternal life. And yet you're the one who wavers back and forth. What I would just simply suggest to you is go back to this simple reality. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you wake up each day, if you struggle with this reality, remind yourself of this, this truth. Remind yourself of all the truths that I've talked about so far, but continually go back to the basics of the gospel and look at it and say, okay, every one of these that we've covered, I mean, straight eight chapters through the book of Romans right now, with exception to chapters one through three, which lay out the problem, Paul has been identifying just what is the indicative, the fact of the reality that's been granted to you simply because of what Christ has done. Once you get to the latter half of the book of Romans, then you start to get into the imperatives or the commands of Scripture. But all of those imperatives flow out of the indicative, meaning that Paul doesn't look at you and say, okay, now I want you to obey because what's going to happen is if you screw up, you're back to square one. No, that's never the case with the gospel. It's actually a reality that says, okay, in light of everything that you know is true, that God has accomplished through you, through Jesus Christ, on your behalf, now obey. Do you see how different that is? We, we often flip those things around, don't we? And we look at it as uh, God is always the maniacal bully, though we would never dare say that. We, we look at him as the maniacal bully who's wagging his finger at us constantly, and he's always disappointed in us because we're his fledgling children who are yet again going back to sin. The point that I'm making, though, is that if you have genuine faith in Christ, whether it's weak or strong, uh, young or old, it doesn't really matter. This is all accomplished purely by the grace of God through faith. The next one I want to talk about comes in Romans 8 again. So Romans 8, 14 through 17, he talks about this reality of what it means to be adopted into the family of God. Now, Romans 8 is just a, an incredibly rich passage that talks about all these different blessings. So we're actually going to stay here the rest of the time. But what this passage highlights ultimately is the work of the Spirit. And this is another gift that's just given to the Christian. So prior to this, and prior to verses 14 through 17, what Paul has been doing is describing the life of the one who's ruled by the Spirit of God. All he means by that is just another way of saying one who's a genuine Christian by faith, right? The one who has placed his ex explicit hope in Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. Well, he talks about a reality that's actually taken place once you're saved. The Spirit now indwells the believer. He gives them life, he unites them with God, and he empowers them to live in a way that actually pleases God. Again, all of this is the indicative. All of this is what God has accomplished. But then now notice how Paul starts to frame this section in terms of adoption into the family of God. So verse 14, if you have your Bibles open, uh, follow along. If you don't, then just go ahead and listen. But in verse 14, he talks about this reality that those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. In verse 15, he says, we no longer have a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, right? Talking about that reality of condemnation, but rather we have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we call out to our heavenly father. In verses 16 and 17, he says, the spirit himself testifies that we are children of God. And if we are also his children, then we are heirs with Christ. So what he's saying here is you've not merely been adopted into the family, you inherit every single blessing that the Father has promised to Christ. I think it was J.I. Packer, but he, he said something to the effect of, the gospel is a scandal, not only because it shows the free grace of God to those who are sinners, he says, but the sinner or the traitor has been brought in for the family meal, and then he's actually been invited to partake in that family itself. Uh, the only thing I would add to it is that every single blessing that's attached to being part of that family is now yours through Christ as well. Throughout the remainder of the chapter then, Paul then just starts to tell us exactly what lengths God has gone to, to not only assure us that we are his children, but all these different things that we have as a blessing simply as a result of being his children. So one of the next ones he goes on to talk about is we have a helper in the spirit, right? So the first idea is that he says, the spirit gives life to our mortal bodies. That's Romans 8, 11. He says, but if the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies 
through his spirit who dwells in you, right? The idea he's speaking to here is that there is this guarantee of the resurrection from the dead, right? If you look back at verse 10, or if you just simply listen to what I'm going to tell you here, uh, he talks about the reality that the spirit of man has been given life because of the righteousness now granted to us by faith, right? That same spirit that lives in us serves as a pledge of this life that is to come. In other words, because the spirit now dwells in us, it is a seal, it is a guarantee, it is a pledge of the redemption that we hope in. Meaning the fact that Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, um, accomplished this spirit being given to us now actually testifies in us of this reality that we await too. All it's saying is that the spirit literally will seal you for the day of redemption. It will give you life to your mortal bodies, right? You're also going to be raised with him. If the spirit indwells you, you will be raised. It's basically a one-to-one -one comparison of what I'm saying here. The reality, again, is apart from anything you do. This is all a free gift of God's grace. Romans 8.16 then talks about this idea of assurance, right? So how many people struggle with assurance of their salvation? They think maybe today I'm a Christian, maybe tomorrow, I don't know. I, I am constantly doubting. I, I've got all these different sins that I'm battling with in my life. But he says in Romans 8.16, the spirit simply testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, right? So there's this objective reality, I want you to hear that objective reality of what the spirit himself does. We may have the subjective experience where we struggle, but the objective reality of what the spirit does is that he testifies with our subjective spirit that we are children of God. So think of those times where you're going through just a trial. Uh, think of those times where you are battling sin and you're really, I mean, you're not the quote unquote struggling Christian who's not struggling at all. You're the guy who's really battling it, and yet you're wondering, okay, if I'm struggling this much with my sin, how much do I love my Savior? But then you start to have those thoughts that come in. Or when you're in a trial, you start to have those reminders of different verses in Scripture that encourage you, right? You go back to the gospel. You're saying, again, no, my sin is exact, exactly what qualifies me to be in need of a Savior, right? I can look back and think in Romans um, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, right? I can look at this reality and, and say that even though my tongue is full of both blessing and cursing, as James would put it, and I know that this reality should not be, that the Spirit is the one who will sanctify me. And I know that even though I don't control my tongue as I should, I love the Lord, right? I'm forgiven because I know that he died in my place and that he rose again on the third day. I, it's not that I just rattle these facts off as if they're facts. No, I genuinely believe them with all my heart. And this is all my confidence. This is all my hope. Well, where do you think those things come from? Right? My point in this, again, is that this is a reality that's all accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's showing you that if you are in Christ, you have a guarantee that you are children of God. The Spirit not only testifies to this fact that we belong to God, but that he will also testify to the fact that he won't cast you away. You know, think of the great assurance that comes with something like that. Even though subjectively, your heart and mind may wander all over the place, you may grieve over your sin. And I mean truly grieve and wonder whether or not you're a Christian. God promises to comfort you. God promises that his spirit will remind you of these truths. God promises that his spirit will testify to the fact that you are not only his children, but that you will indeed not be cast away and you will one day inherit eternal life. And with eternal life comes no more sin, no more heart and mind that wander, no more grievous actions or thoughts or any of that. The reality is that if you have the spirit of God within you, none of that will go away. And it doesn't depend on you or I. The point is that God will carry us through from start to finish, and he will even encourage you in the midst of it because he is reminding you yet again that it is all of grace. This, again, too, is just a simple fact or reality that Paul declares. In verse 17, then, in Romans 8, he talks about this assurance of our inheritance to come. So think of this same work that the Spirit does, right? In, in light of the same reality where the Spirit is our helper, the Spirit confirms that because of the work of Jesus Christ, you actually have a guarantee you won't see wrath and eternal death, but that God will grant you a hope in what is to come. 
you'll see redemption. You will see life. You will see all of creation be redeemed. You will see a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And God will carry you from this life to the next. Right then think of Romans 8, 26 through 27. He says the spirit prays on our behalf. So again, this is an indicative reality. It's a fact. Even as you don't know what to pray, the way that I always picture this, right, is we, we come with our jumbled up prayers. We have a massive trial that hits. We have no idea what to do. And we're just kind of groaning, as Paul puts it here. Um, even when you say, Father, I don't even know how to pray for this. The objective reality is that the Spirit will take your prayers and shape them into good prayers, right? He'll actually take them and bring them before the Father and intercede on your behalf. And also the scriptures say here that Christ also intercedes on your behalf. So at all times, you have an intra-Trinitarian work happening in your prayer life, whether you know it or not. And even if you come with a bad prayer, the Father is pleased to answer the prayer of the Spirit who takes that bunk prayer and transforms it into a prayer that's acceptable. I think of how many people just struggle to pray, right? But think of how the Spirit will continue to work as you pray, even. Little by little, he starts to develop and deepen your affections for God. He starts to develop and deepen your trust for God. All of these different things are works of the Spirit that are born out of this reality in which he's praying on your behalf, but also ministering to you. And again, it's an indicative reality, guys. It will not change. You can you can grieve the Spirit as a result of your sin, but if you are genuinely in Christ, the Spirit will convict you of sin even and produce repentance in you. If you're not in Christ and you've never experienced these realities, the point that I just want to simply make to you now is that this is free access through Jesus Christ. Again, it's not dependent on how you and I feel. It's much different than any other world religion out there because it's purely the gift of God's grace. Then you continue in Romans 8, and he talks about this reality that God works all things together for our good. Right? Everybody knows this verse. This is probably one of the most popular verses in all of Scripture, at least people being able to recall it off the top of their head. But what we often do is divorce it from its context. Well, in Romans 8, 28, when he's talking about being called according to his purpose, that purpose is bound up in our inheritance as his children. Ultimately, what I mean is that one day we'll be raised with Christ and see God face to face. In other words, that inheritance he's speaking of is not simply some nebulous thing. It's actually the resurrection. So as you live through trials, basically the reality is that you can know, even in spite of all of this, that God is working all things towards your redemption and glorification. As you are suffering, you can think through the same thing. As you are battling your sin, again, God is working all such things toward your redemption and glorification if you are in Christ. Romans 8.29 then continues to pick up on this. <clears throat> he says he predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So, Little by little, day by day, your heart and your mind and affections and everything else about you are being transformed to actually reflect more and more of your Savior. That's what I meant earlier when I'm talking about this genuine transformation of the heart. Something actually wonderful has taken place. It's a brand new world for you if you are in Christ. What that means is that there's this progressive reality of sanctification in which God is pleased to take you through, but with the exclusive purpose of bringing you to be more and more like Jesus. Though God saves you in your state of sin and rebellion, I think Sinclair Ferguson, he's, he says he's not content to leave you there, but he will actually transform you into the likeness of his son. This is all by God's grace, beloved. You know, think of that. There's a promise even in your sanctification that God is always at work, and this is all part and parcel to that calling, which is according to his purpose, which ends in your redemption and glorification. In verse 30 in Romans 8, he talks about this reality of our salvation being secured from start to finish, right? This whole section is commonly called the golden chain of redemption, but every bit of it is speaking towards this reality that none of this is work that you have done, you are doing, or you will do. It's a simple declared reality that is given to you as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. And so when you start to look at all of this in conjunction from, from start to finish, right? I mean, we just took a, a fly-by view from Romans 3 all the way to the Romans 8. This now starts to make sense when we look at everything that Paul talks about at the very end of chapter 8, where he says there's 
there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Right? This is why Paul can say at the end of it, if God is for us, who can be against it? If God is the justifier of the unrighteous, who can stand to condemn us? Right? Think of all the people that mock you. Who cares? If all of this is a declared reality, the point that Paul makes in this section here is that every bit of your inheritance is so stinking secure because of what Jesus has done that nothing else really matters at the end of the day. There's no tribulation, no distress, no persecution, no famine, or nakedness, no peril, or even sword, he says, can come between you and Jesus Christ. In every bit of it, he is the one who secures us through every bit of our life and even our death. Why? Because he has adopted us as his children in love. The Father has adopted us into the family. From Romans 8, 1 all the way down to the end, that's the framework that Paul's working in here. That's why he can say, when it comes to anything, we're deemed more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself up for us being Christ, right? The point in every bit of this is that salvation from start to finish is all a work of God that is appropriated through faith. It's all by grace. At the moment that you were forgiven of your sins and declared righteous, right, that justification, you were given peace with God. At the moment you were given peace with God, you were under no more wrath or no more condemnation. <clears throat> At the moment you had no condemnation, you were granted all the blessings that are yours through being a child of Christ. Every bit of this is contingent upon your, your union with Jesus Christ. And so my simple counsel is that when you start to struggle with every bit of life, or you start to doubt your salvation, you start to wonder, maybe am I even doing enough in it? You have to come back to the groundwork of the gospel, or not the groundwork rather, but the, the base facts of the gospel. And that includes all of this. These are all things that have been accomplished solely because of what Christ has done. This is why he says we're more than conquerors. It's not because you and I are somehow strong. It's not because we can pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and continue to uh, toughen up and walk through every bit of life. The reality of what he speaks to is that Christ has accomplished so much for us that salvation, start to finish, is a work of God. When you speak to what salvation is, my point in this is rather simple. It's not just that we are saved from our sins. That is a key, key component of it. That is a crucial reality. That is one of the blessed hopes that we have. We are saved from our sins. We are saved from the wrath of God. It's not even just that. It's all of these different blessings that we have inherited as a result of being united with Christ. There's more to it, in other words, than just being free from the wrath of God. There's more to it than just being forgiven. These are monumental and huge things. These are things that you need to remind yourselves of every single day of your life. But there's so much more that was accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In every bit of it, we bring nothing to the table. It's all the free gift of God's grace. So think of this again. I just want to close with this. As you doubt, remind yourself of these realities. As you look at things and start to wonder, am I really a Christian? Go back to the basics of the gospel and start to work through that and affirm. And I don't mean in the, the word of faith type of affirmation. What I mean is simple. Affirm those same truths you confessed when you first cast yourself at the mercy of God in Christ. Go back through even just the book of Romans and start to identify where is a fact or reality that is drawn out as a result of what Jesus has done. Go into the book of Galatians, go into the book of Ephesians. You can go into any one of these different books of the New Testament and start to draw out these realities. You'll tell the difference actually quite simple because your commands are going to be straightforward commands. And you and I just know this often off the top of our heads when we read it. If I were to look at you and say, you're a wonderful person, I'm talking about a fact or reality. But if I were to say, you need to go clean your room, Every one of you knows that's a command. Start to do that with scripture and start to look at it and think, okay, what is a fact or reality or what is a command? If this is a command, I have to remember, this is all born out of this indicative reality of what Christ has accomplished. 
every bit of what God commands us is not in order that we might be saved. Every bit of what God commands us is born out of the fact that we are saved. And now we want to walk in this newness of life, this freedom from the slavery of sin, and start to pursue righteousness instead. So ground yourself in the simple realities of what the truth of the gospel has actually done for you. And then start to reorient your hope and your mind and your heart and your affections towards what is to come. All this is part of it too, right? You can't divorce the gospel from the return of Jesus Christ. Right now, we hang suspended between these two great days, between his first coming and his second coming. But until then, remind yourself of these truths, okay? So that's what I want to leave with today. I hope that was encouraging to you. Lord willing, we'll be able to pick up again next time with Jack and Blake. Um, but for now, take care. Take care.